Certainly there is always a need to emphasize the power, the perfection of the Word of God. And I know of no passage in Old or New Testament, for that matter, that does that any better than does the 119th Psalm. We have looked in times past at, at sections or stanzas, if you will, of this uh, uh, great psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, as a matter of fact. It's an acrostic psalm. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are eight verses in each one of these stanzas that uh, coincide with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And within each section, each one of those eight verses begins, the first word of the line begins with the letter of that particular letter in the alphabet. It is truly an acrostic psalm. So preachers have very good biblical authority for, uh, for doing acrostic uh, sermons, don't they? Because the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist, whoever he was, to do just that. Perhaps for the sake of memorizing this song or to facilitate memorizing this song. We do not know. Nor are we absolutely sure about the author of this song, though many attribute it to David, uh, some to Ezra, but perhaps David, the, the psalmist, was the author. But it matters not who the human writer was because it has its place in the canon of Scripture and the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the writer to pen these words that are so vitally important to our appreciation and our understanding of the power of God's Word. And so periodically I like to look at a segment from, from this psalm, and we have not looked at this point at verse 33 beginning. These particular eight verses that comprise this segment of Psalm 119 through uh, verse 40. I'd like for us to look together as we remind ourselves this morning of just how powerful, how poignant, how perfect the Word of God is and how important it is to our lives. And oh, how we wish that all in this world understood and appreciated that importance and that they would feed upon the Word and have the attitude toward the Word that the psalmist expresses in these verses we're about to study. He begins in this section, verse 33, with this request. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Think about those first two words. Teach me. Teach me. What an attitude that expresses. And how important it is that we have that attitude to be teachable. Because there are so many in the world in which we live today who do not have that attitude. There were those in the time of Christ who did not exhibit that attitude. There is so much to be said about the person who will say, teach me, teach me. I want to learn, teach me. It should be the attitude of every person. But Jesus spoke of those of his day who were unteachable, and we have many of those persisting tragically to this day in time. You remember in the 15th chapter of Matthew, at verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, These people draw near, as he quoted Isaiah, called them hypocrites in verse 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There are those in the time in which we find ourselves today who have no interest in studying the Word of God or saying, in effect, teach me as they come to the Word of God. Then there are those 
who are equivalent to those of whom Jesus spoke in the passage we just read, who in effect say, teach me, but they are saying that with a view toward the traditions and the creeds and the doctrines of men that are taught to them. And they are imbibing those teachings rather than the teaching that comes truly from God. And that takes us to the next phrase in this, uh, in this 33rd verse. Teach me, O Lord. That's the source of the teaching. That is the only source of the teaching to which we should go to be taught. And yet the creeds and the doctrines and the traditions of men, as Jesus expressed it in his day in the passage we just read, are still prevalent today. There is a proliferation of denominationalism where literally now, not hundreds, but thousands of denominations are in existence. Why do they exist? They exist because people have not been determined to come to the Lord, that is to his word, as the psalmist did, to say, teach me. But beyond that, to say, teach me, Lord, the source of teaching, what? The way of your statutes. Teach me the way. Which again reminds us of the singularity of the way. And the statement that Jesus made so familiar to us in John 14, 6, I am the way. Not ways, but way. The way. The truth. The way. The truth. The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The world in which we live today says ways, plural. The word says way, singular. And the way is the word, described here as your statutes, your statutes. It is interesting to see how the law of the Lord, to which the psalmist was amenable, is described by various terms, statutes and testimonies and commandments and judgments and all of these different expressions, all of which describe one singular standard, the law of God. Now, we realize as we study this great Old Testament psalm that the law to which the psalmist refers was the law of the Lord that was pertinent to him, that was applicable at that time, that is the the law of Moses, but the principle is absolutely applicable to us today. It is certainly pertinent to us. And the principles that are set forth here have very clear and meaningful application to us today. Teach me. What an attitude. O Lord, the source of that teaching. What? The way, not ways, but the way of your statutes, which tells us there has always been, always will be, a singular standard that we are to follow. We're to adhere adhere to it initially in obedience to it, and then what? I shall keep it to the end. I shall keep it to the end. That way must be kept. That way that applies to us today is the New Testament, of course, the law of Christ, not the law to which the psalmist, as we said, was amenable. But the principle is certainly the same. And in that Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus reminds us that that way to which we must adhere, that way that we must keep to the end, is not always going to be a bed of roses. It is not always going to be an easy way. In fact, he says what? Enter by the narrow gate, Matthew seven thirteen. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because, verse 14, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life 
and there are few, remember, few, who find it. The psalmist was one who had found the way of the Lord and was determined to keep it to the end. That's verse 33. But his next request in verse 34 is, give me, give me. The Lord is a giver. And we need to appreciate that God will give to those who ask for those gifts in accordance with his will in every way. And here the psalmist asks for understanding. There's a difference between knowledge and understanding. He does not request that the Lord would give him knowledge alone, but understanding or perception of his will. There is a difference between knowledge and understanding, and as we have often said, I could memorize every verse in the Scripture if I had that capability, and yet come away from that effort with absolutely no understanding at all because of the vast difference between the two. And there are those who in today's world will contend vehemently that we cannot understand the will of God anyway, and that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no possibility of understanding the Bible alike. That we are, certainly ought to be content. We are content, they tell us, and should be content to have the thousands of denominations that exist, teaching, diff teaching differing doctrines. And yet the psalmist requests time and time again gets us back to one way, one path, one law, one word, and one request to give me understanding of that word. Why would he pray for something that was not a possibility, that could not be a reality? And why would the Apostle Paul write these words in Ephesians 5 and verse 17 concerning the new covenant, the law of Christ, when he writes to the Ephesians and says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's a command. That's a command. Understand what the will of the Lord is. But the key to understanding what the will of the Lord is is going to be my attitude toward the word of the Lord and how much time I'm willing to spend with it and what kind of attitude I have as I enter into that study. I will keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. That addresses the matter of attitude. I will keep your law. The problem with so many who don't keep the law today, the law of Christ, is that there's no keeping because there's no understanding. But there's no understanding because of no real interest in Bible study in order to reach that understanding. They simply want it to be spoon-fed in a way that they can embrace it uh, in a surface-type fashion, in a, in a nominal approach to it, and feel good about doing badly. But the psalmist here reminds us of just how fervent, how intense our approach to the Word of God should be. And he also reminds us of the product that comes from that. If I observe it with my what? With my whole heart. Notice the importance of that qualifying statement. I shall observe it, but here's the qualifying statement. With my whole heart. With my whole heart. That's the importance of that statement of whole heart is that God, it reminds us, is concerned with the heart. We talked in Bible class this morning about John 4, 24. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit. That's wholehearted worship, in spirit as well as in truth. 
We've talked about in times past an admonition that David gave to Solomon, his son, near the end of David's life in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9 where he said this, And as for you, Solomon, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Hear the importance of that. God is concerned about the heart. He's concerned about the heart. Read the book of Acts concerning the early church in those early chapters and see how many references there are to heart and the hearts of those people being knit together. And they were of one mind and one heart. God has always been concerned about the heart. And the psalmist says, I want to serve you, keep your law with my whole heart. David said to Solomon, that's what you must do. If David was indeed the writer of this psalm, and as he gives this instruction to Solomon, we see a a real consistency there between what David tried to live, though he was a human being and made his mistakes, obviously, and what he advised his son to do in terms of living in order to please God. You have got to get your heart into it. You really have to put your heart into it. Not just actions, but attitude. The Old Testament prophet Hosea, whom we have studied recently in our study of the minor prophets, in chapter 10, verse 2, wrote this. Their heart, talking about Israel, their heart is divided. That was a problem. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars because they were dividing their allegiance between the idols made with hands and the living God. And God says you cannot have it that way. I demand wholehearted. I deserve wholehearted service. And so the psalmist makes that abundantly clear. We're to serve God with the whole heart. Then look at verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Again, notice the singular path of your commandments. Not paths, but the path of your commandments. And notice the delight that comes from the devotion and the dedication to his word. There is delight that follows the keeping of the commandments of the Lord. And oh, how tragic it is that people do not realize the joy that awaits them, and they never experience that joy because they don't understand the joy that awaits them in the honest study of God's Word and the application of that Word to their lives. And I wish I could say that every member of the Lord's church did understand and appreciate that joy and did experience that joy because of that honest and diligent study, but many do not even in the church today, fully appreciate the delight that follows diligent study of God's Word because it is like no other word and will produce an effect that no other word can produce. I think of Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, a passage that we have looked at in times past. Your words, the, uh, the prophet says, were found and I did eat them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Think about it. Your words were found, and I did what? Eh, look at them casually. No, I did eat them. I did eat them. I took them in. 
I made them a part of myself. And because I did, your word was to me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And then he adds, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. What a delight should be produced in every child of God, knowing he's called by his name and that he's following in his path. The path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And then the next verse in our section, incline my heart to your testimonies, and here's the contrast, and not to covetousness. Let me keep your covenant rather than covetousness. There's the contrast. It's either the covenant of God or the covetousness that characterizes this world. And there really is no in-between. There really is no compromise. You can't compromise the covenant by being covetous. But you must adhere to the covenant. In the case of the psalmist, it was the old covenant. In the case of the Christian, it's the new covenant. And the contrast is, let me cling to that covenant. Incline my heart to that covenant rather than to the covetousness that characterizes so much of this world. A covetousness which the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 and verse 5 calls what? Idolatry. There are a great many people who would never in their lives consider falling down before some idol made with hands and worshiping that idol. And yet they'll be covetous in ways that still constitute covetousness even though it's not literally falling down before an idol. Because covetousness, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, is idolatry. Whatever it is that causes you to be covetous and to violate God's covenant as a result of that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry. And we know how God feels about idolatry, don't we? Therefore, therefore, the psalmist says, I want my heart inclined to your testimonies and away from, away from the things of the world. He reminds us of the power of the word to keep us from covetousness, which is idolatry. And that thought is continued in the next verse. Look at verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. What are you looking at? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? According to the psalmist, it's a vitally important question. What are you looking at? We need to ask ourselves that. Where is our focus? What are we really looking at? As Steve mentioned as he talked about the tragic and sudden passing of Alan Collette, it can happen so quickly. It can happen so quickly. At any age, to anyone at any time. Therefore, it is vitally important that we make sure we're looking at the things that are above and not on things on this earth. Isn't that what Paul admonished in Colossians 3 beginning at verse 1? If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? For you died. You died when you became a Christian. You died to covetousness. You died to the world. You died and your life is what? Hidden now. Where? With Christ in God. Therefore, in the covenant, 
there can be no covetousness. Therefore, what I'm looking at is vitally important. What I'm looking at is vitally important. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. Latter part of Isaiah 33 at verse 15 where God is describing through the prophet those upon whom he looks with favor. He mentions this one and shuts his eyes. The one who shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Shut your eyes to seeing evil. Turn away your eyes from looking at worthless things. You know, there's an application there not only to the things that are sinful at which we should not look, that's obvious, but even paying too much attention to things that are not in and of themselves sinful but can cause us to lose our fervor and our zeal for the Lord. We dare not look at those things too much either. In other words, anything at which I'm looking that takes me away from looking where I need to look, that is to heavenly things, to spiritual things, I cannot give that much attention to those things. I've got to fulfill my responsibilities to family, to the things of this world. I can't ignore that. That would be anti-biblical to do so. But if I lose sight of my priorities and spend too much time even with things that are not in and of themselves sinful but worthless compared to eternity, then I've also got a problem there. In other words, I've just simply got to prioritize. Matthew 6.33 summarizes it beautifully. The Lord said, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. They're necessary to life, many of them, but they're worthless compared to eternity because they're not going to last. So if I spend an inordinate amount of time looking at those things while I ignore looking at the things that are eternal, then I have a problem, don't I? What are you looking at? Very important question we need to keep in mind. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and what? Revive me. There's where revival is. True renewal and revival in your what? Your way. And there we are, back to that way, back to that path. Back to the way of your statutes, verse 33. Back to the path, verse 35. And here, your way. And then verse 38. Establish me. Establish me what? Establish your word to your servant. Establish me in your word. We've talked recently in another class uh, session about establish. Paul in the Roman letter, remember, wanted to visit them that they might be established in their faith, grounded, well grounded. What is it that will do it? Establish your word. That will ground you. If the word of the God of heaven is, is in you, and you're living in accordance with that word, there's where the grounding comes. Establish your word to your servant. Who serve, what servant? How is the servant described? Who is what? Devoted to what? Fearing you. Devoted to fearing you. What does he mean, fearing you? I'm devoted to being in dread and absolute terror and living in horror of the Lord every day. I'm devoted to that kind of fear? No, he's not talking about that kind of fear, is he? He's talking about reverential fear. I'm devoted to glorifying you. I'm devoted to reverencing your name and exalting your name. Not 
dread and terror. John in 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out that kind of fear, that kind of dread or terror. No, no, he who, he who fears in the wrong sense of the word fear is not made perfect in love. But he who is made perfect in love still fears in a different sense. How? By reverence and respect and awe for the word of God and for God himself. Yes, he says then, turn away my reproach, verse 39, which I dread for your judgments are good. What does he mean, turn away my reproach, which I dread? Well, it may very well be that he is referencing the reproach that comes to someone who is a worshiper of God and whom others do not appreciate as, worshiper, as a worshiper of God. And therefore, there may be a reproach that comes to the one who is following God. Does one enjoy that kind of reproach? Do you like being rebuked? Do you like being persecuted? Do you like being put down? Do you like being made fun of because you're trying to do right? I don't. I don't think you do either. But I dare not change my devotion to the Word of God and to the will of God and to the God of heaven in order to avoid that reproach. Remember what Jesus said about it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes there, verse 10, beginning. He said, blessed are you when men revile you, when you're persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't enjoy reproach. I don't. I don't think you do. But the Lord says when it comes, when it comes, Rejoice that you are in effect counted worthy to suffer that reproach because you are walking with God according to His commandments. And then finally, verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. There's that attitude again. We're back to attitude. Behold, I what? I long for your precepts. Back to the delight in verse 35 longing for your precepts. Why? Because he understands the power of those precepts. He understands the product of those precepts. The product being joy and peace, forgiveness, revival. And that's what he says in the last phrase we'll examine. Revive me in your righteousness. You want to be revived? There is but one way to be revived, and that is in his Righteousness. What does that mean? His righteousness is that which makes one righteous. Remember Romans 1, verse 17. Paul said of the gospel, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That is, the way to be righteous before God is revealed in the gospel. Later on in that same Roman epistle, at chapter 10, remember he said, My heart's desire, prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, that's God's plan for making man righteous, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the what? Righteousness of God. The psalmist says, Revive me in your righteousness. What is that? It's equivalent to saying, Revive me in your word. Because only in that word can righteousness be obtained. 
And only through that word can revival of the soul become a reality. What about you? Do you need revival? you need to be revived in the righteousness of God? That is, do you need to come to God through Jesus Christ as, a, as an alien sinner? If so, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Him to be the Christ. Be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. Then and only then can that revival occur. As you are raised to walk in newness of life, you are revived in His righteousness because you have been obedient to the righteousness of God that will wash away your sins in the blood of His Son. If you need to be revived in another way because you have once known that initial revival in righteousness but have turned from the righteousness of God, from His Word, and need to come home, our fervent prayer is that you do that this very day, confessing the sin that needs to be confessed publicly as we pray with you and for you to the God who loves you and will revive you in His righteousness. As we stand to sing, will you come?